Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 200 being recorded on Wednesday, October 9th, 2019. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. You guys can't see us right now, but Jason and I are wearing our tuxedos, and that's because we are celebrating our 200th episode and four years of podcasting together. Jason, I don't think we've uh, told our origin story, Um, so this is probably a good time as any since it's been four years. Uh, So here's my recollection. We'll see if this lines up with your memory. Yeah, and then I'll correct it. (laughs) It wouldn't be a Jason Scott show without a a lot of uh, Jason correcting Scott. Uh, So my memory is we were having some adult beverages after a board meeting um, that was part of the shop.org digital summit held in Philadelphia. And uh, this is back in 2015, uh, and we were about uh, an hour into a payments discussion, and I, uh, on the side, was just starting to do some podcast listening, uh, a little late to the party there, but better late than never. And then, you know, we you started talking, I was like, you know, every time I'm hanging out with Jason, I, uh, I learn a lot about payments and retail and all that offline stuff that I don't spend a lot of time thinking about. Hopefully you learn a lot about e-commerce marketplace from me. And I said, you know, we should do a podcast where you talk about your payments and offline stuff. And I could talk about online stuff and, and maybe there's an audience out there. Uh, then we pretty quickly moved on to probably personalization or, or one of your other favorite topics, maybe digital signage or something. <laughs> and then a week later you called and said, Hey, uh, you know, you talked about podcasting. I have all the equipment and I'm ready to go. And I figured this all out. Let's do our first show uh, at, for Singles Day, and we were off to the races. So, so I learned an important life lesson from all this, uh, and that is with great power comes great responsibility. Um, Scott, I think that might have been Spider-Man's life lesson. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Sorry, I get my, my Marvel and podcasting mixed up. Uh, the real life lesson was uh, if you're going to pitch Jason on an idea, you have to be 100% ready to run with it and be committed for at least four years. Yeah, yeah, you pay a horrible price by pitching me uh, uh, if you're not ready. Uh, I think the secondary lesson here is if you want to pitch Jason and uh, have it work, pitch him something that uh, allows him to buy new electronic gadgets. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, so I think like uh, when we started this, I did a little research into podcasting, and it was like the majority of podcasts fail in the first eight episodes. So my my goal when we started was we're, we're uh, going to stick with this and, and not bail during the first eight episodes. And I thought, you know, our, uh, maybe the, the 12 members of the shop.org board and our friends and family would listen. And it's been wildly more successful than that. We 50 X, wait, 208. Uh, we, we 50 X your goal. No, uh, 25 X. Yeah, it's amazing. And I, uh, I was looking at some of our podcast stats last night and we have now crossed over 176 hours of content. So if you are so inclined, you could listen to us talk for seven straight days without taking a break, 24 hours a day. Awesome. That's uh, for you hardcore uh, streamers out there. Yeah. And if anyone chooses to do that, let us know. <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing a lot of those early shows aren't going to stand up. But uh, yeah, and then uh, a couple months in, we started adding guests. So uh, our, our first guest was uh, Peter Cobb, and that was episode 15. I also chuckled. Uh, our first uh, several episodes were like 30 minutes, and we slowly have crept up to the 60-minute mark. And I think our 200th anniversary show is likely to go even maybe a little longer than that. I was looking at some of the, the podcast stats, and our most popular guest was Ken Warzel, who was then the president of digital at Nordstrom. He now is still the president of digital, but also the COO. Our most popular news show was the show we did about Amazon acquiring Whole Foods. The deep dives have been especially popular. And surprisingly, our most popular deep dive was on artificial intelligence, which is not necessarily what I would have guessed. And then of the guests, our sort of two Hall of Fame guests, we have uh, Samir Bhavani, and who is then with 1010 Data that has a bunch of really interesting data on uh, 
on uh, how how people uh, behave on Amazon. And uh, Tamara Gaffney, who is um, with Adobe and 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 uh, had all the the data from Adobe Analytics on on how customers shopped over holiday. Both of those guests were on three shows, and I'm, I have to throw in an honorable mention for Melissa Burdick and uh, Jamie Dooley. They've both been on two shows. And a show fun fact, they actually recorded a third show together and it never aired because uh, we had some uh, problems with permissions from one of their employers. Those are some awesome facts, Jason. It's been a great four years. And in all seriousness, we couldn't have done this and we wouldn't have done it uh, without you, the listeners. We really appreciate Appreciate you guys listening to our thoughts around retail and e-commerce each week. And we've gotten just amazing feedback, questions, guests I would have never uh, imagined we would get on a podcast. Uh, we really appreciate it and realize uh, we're busy like you are and you have a million things you could be doing. And you, we're really humbled and honored that you take time to listen to our thoughts each week. Yeah, I uh, want to echo your sentiments exactly, Scott. I'm, I'm super grateful, particularly for those listeners that have stuck with us for a long time. Like it's now become one of my funnest things to do is go to some industry event and, you know, just random people in line waiting to register or get Starbucks or whatever. Uh, will occasionally recognize my voice and it's triggered all kinds of fun, fun conversations. Uh, and, you know, in a few rare occasions, people have even recognized my voice at airports. So that's super fun. And I'm, I'm really grateful for all the listeners that have made this a great show. Well, since this is our 200th episode and four year anniversary celebration, we wanted to do something really, really special. I like to say it took us 200 tries and I think we've actually going to deliver on something really exciting this time. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> uh, that's right, Scott. I am here with Janie Whiteside, Walmart's executive vice president and first chief customer officer, which we're going to want to hear more uh, about. Janie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to be here. Uh, we are thrilled to have you. A tradition we always have on the show with guests is to get a little bit of their background uh, prior to their current role. So can you tell us a little bit about what you did before Walmart? Yeah, so uh, I'm going to age myself here, but uh, before Walmart, I spent 20 years at American Express. Um, so I started and uh, did have a job before that. So uh, I was at HSBC before that. Um, so I've only ever worked at three companies. Um, but during my 20 years at American Express, um, I, you know what, I, when I first started, I was, um, I was in finance. Um, I, when I first started my career, I was in like I moved from banking to planning and finance, and was starting to figure out that maybe finance wasn't you know wasn't my passion and where I wanted to go. Uh, moved over to American Express, and I was doing pricing work, um, and realized pretty quickly that there was a lot of people over the other side of the floor. The marketers all sat on the other side of the floor, and they seemed to have way more fun uh, than than we were having, you know, bashing away in our spreadsheets. Um, and so, you know, was given the chance uh, and the opportunity to uh, move over to the uh, new product development team. And then, you know, that that was really it. And spent then the next 20 years in a whole variety of um, the various disciplines across marketing, um, uh, business development, sales roles. You know, I, I feel very passionately that it's really hard to sell on behalf of a company if you don't really understand the 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 customer, the brand, you know, how products are being built and sold. And so spent a lot of time bringing business development and sales teams together, um, did, you know, client management roles. And when I left, um, I was actually running the global uh, premium products and benefits and services. So if you think about green, gold, platinum and centurion, the cards, the, the Amex cards, and then all of the services um, that support them. So whether that's, you know, a lot of people are familiar with the airport lounges or uh, travel services or the things that um, membership rewards, the things that ran across the in, the entire uh, product set globally. Very cool. And um, uh, obviously American Express is sort of famously uh, quantitative, has a ton of data. So when you talk about getting to know the customer, uh, it feels like you're in a unique position to really know your customers well. Um, but uh Tell me if I have this right. I want to th say one of the cool promotions um, during your tenure at American Express was the beginning of Small Business Saturday. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'd like to say that it was my idea. It wasn't. <laughs> um, it was many people's idea. Um, and uh, I think what was most interesting, honestly, about Small Business Saturday um, at the time and then the continuation was it was an opportunity – 
for America Express to really do something to celebrate, to promote, to uplift small businesses around the country in a time, you know, in, in, in a time of turmoil. It's probably the first time I've ever worked on an initiative that was so genuinely in favor of the customer um, that uh, American, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't in favor of American Express. So our entire ethos was go find a small business, go, you know, go, go test it, go see it, go see what makes them different and hopefully spend some money. And if you spend that on cash or Visa or MasterCard or American Express, we don't care. We just want you to go and learn what is really different about small businesses. Um, and, you know, it, from a purpose perspective, uh, what was really interesting was everybody wanted to work on it, right? You could handpick the talent across the company because everybody felt like you were serving a, you know, a higher purpose. And um, there was just a real passion and dedication of the teams that, that continued the, that through all the way all the way through when I left at least. Yeah, and that is very cool because obviously the, the whole purpose-driven uh, campaigns are very in vogue right now. Like some are wildly successful, some like you know have dubious authenticity. Uh, but it, it's totally cool to see those those campaigns that were so successful, sort of before it was the trend du jour. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so after uh, doing your bit to help small businesses <laughs> in America, uh, you you changed roles to uh, the diametric <laughs> opposite of small businesses. Yes. Uh, I was just as I was talking about small business Saturday. I was like, "Oh, we're going to parlay this into how do you go from that to?" Oh, I can transition uh, anything. Uh, obviously, <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so I am um, Walmart's first ever chief customer officer on paper. Although you know, as you go back through, one of the things I like to do when I go into any role, any job, any brand is to go back to look forward. So I like to go back to the archives. I like to take a look at where are we today and, and where have we come from. If you go back and you take a look at the Sam Walton Made in America book or, uh, you know, any of the the things that you can see online, what's super interesting to me is he, you know, obviously was incredibly smart and a consummate retailer, but actually a marketing genius way before his time. And you start when you start to think about, and we'll, we'll talk in a bit about things like uh, in, innate segmentation and design targeting and really... Uh, targeted product and positioning and how you do that way ahead of his time. And so he really was, right? He really was the, the first chief customer officer um, because he was so highly thoughtful about, A, the mission uh, and, B, the deployment of that and, and how you grow your business and obviously grew it from, you know, from a, from a small business to the to the world's, the world's largest company. Um, what I, you know, what constitutes a chief customer officer today, I like to say it's everything sort of at the beginning of the funnel, at the end of the funnel, and then and, and supporting underneath. So super tactically, it means um, uh, the unique source of a voice of the customer. So, you know, insights, data, trends, all of that. How do we have it? How do we actually have a single voice of the customer? And how do we ensure that that is used objectively? across the company. We, I mean, we all know there are facts, there's, you know, fake facts, there's, there's fake news, there's half news. We need to make sure that we have the capacity to have a source of data that is used consistently and objectively. How do we identify the right customer journeys we want to solve? How do you prioritize those? How do you deploy the resources cross-functionally uh, against those? Um, I have a sort of innovation slash new product development Group, so you may have seen um, us, us talk externally about what we call in-home, which is where we actually deliver uh, groceries into the fridge. Um, so taking that service, expanding that, continuing to test, and then see where, where do we take that. And there are a whole series of other innovations we're, we're developing there. Um, uh, and so think about that sort of right at the front of the funnel as, as we think about early stage innovation. <clears throat> uh, Chief product officer runs all about, you know, our digital product and then how do we deploy that in a nominee fashion. I have a team that runs um, our services and that's everything from all the financial services we offer in the store to our credit card to any of the services in and around the store. So think about the Builder Bear or the FedEx or the Nail Salon or the Chick-fil-A that is, you know, in and in and around the store uh, and drives and drives that as well as our Omni services. So if you think about um, something like cake decorating. Right, you order the cake. You order the decorating online. How do you integrate that? You know, into the app, Walmart Pay, all those sorts of things. Uh, uh, interestingly enough, we run returns end to end. So returns is a really, you know, is a customer problem, but also a huge issue for us economically. 
uh, and then um, uh, a Walmart, the the Walmart Media Group, as a as the selling or as the selling entity uh, against our organization. CMO, the full stack CMO, uh, and then I would say that is supported by uh, the customer care organisation. So, what happens as you transact with us, and, and how do we support the customer? So, it's you know at the front in terms of informing the organisation, at the back in terms of creating demand for the front, and then supporting underneath. Yeah, so that's an incredibly broad scope, which I imagine doesn't leave a ton of time for side hustles. <laughs> No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and one of the things I I particularly admire about that structure is uh, it, it you, you mentioned the full stack CMO. Like it literally does sit above marketing. So like you, you know, everybody talks about sort of putting the customer at the center. Um, but you guys from literally an org chart standpoint are really putting sort of this customer ownership like at the center of all of these different disciplines at Walmart, which uh, is, uh, uh, to my knowledge, somewhat of a – a newer uh, structure that we haven't seen a lot at retail in the past. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of debate. Um, you know, one of the comments, frankly, that I've heard is, oh, well, Janie's just the CMO. She's just a glorified CMO, yeah. right? Um, <clears throat> and look, there are many different constructs where CMOs are purely demand gen or in other companies, you know, they, they have a lot in there. Like, I, you know, in, in uh, my particular structure, you didn't hear me talk about public affairs and communications, right? So, for instance, I don't have that because that's, that's a... a uh, different skill, but to me, there is a difference between understanding and helping the organization really, truly build for the customer and pull that through in an organization that has been built up on its, you know, and has built tremendous scale through its absolutely flawless uh, operational execution and its capacity to, you know, build, create, source amazing products at great price points. Those we need to continue to do and we'll continue to do, but we need to make sure that we are mindful of the customer that we're, do, that we're doing it for. That is really different from how do you create demand, right? And, and, and what do you do and how do you run a fully optimized media budget, which is in the, you know, billions. Yeah. It's, uh, it's amazing. The, uh, the spectrum you work with must make your head spin. It must be hard to prioritize everything you have on, on your plate. Um, I was going to do a shout out to listeners. One of my favorite books, I'm kind of a, a, a nerd on uh, entrepreneurial biographies. One of my favorites it came out around in the early nineties was Sam Walton made in America. I don't see it around much anymore, but it's a great book. So I was looking it up this morning, actually, because <clears throat> I was recommending it to somebody. It's a super easy read. Um, sounds like it would be nerdy, but actually it's not. And I will tell you uh, more often than not, I go back and no week goes past or I don't go back to take a little read of a, of a section. Obviously, it's important for me as you think about the ethos of Walmart, but there is so much goodness in there in terms of the thought process. And for me, the uh, the unwavering dedication to building a business, building it the right way, and the, the notion that um, you can democratize retail. Uh, and just because you have less financial means and or you pretend, you know, you live in a you don't live in a city does not mean you shouldn't have access to great quality items uh, at really affordable prices. Yeah, absolutely. It, this may be an urban legend, but isn't his office preserved in Bentonville and you can kind of go see it? And uh, is that true or not? Yeah. Well, yeah. Yes and no. Yes, it's Doug's office. So, right. So, okay. um, <laughs> so Doug sits in it now. Um, it's the desk. Uh, we just did a sort of mild refurb of, of, of that space in in Bentonville. So yeah, it's, it's there in all its glory. Um, and you know, I haven't asked, um, but now I'm going to, is when we moved to our new head office, we announced we are making a new home office. I'm assuming somehow it will be, be lifted and shifted. And actually we are, we are building a replica in the museum, uh, in downtown Bentonville nice. too, so that we, you know, we have it preserved there too. Yeah. I was got uh, a funny story I heard Doug, uh, tell once is that, um, he's like, it's mildly a pain working, in a historic office because he's like, you know, he's like, when I first started, I like asked if I could get a whiteboard over here and, then, and, they're, and they're like, they're basically like, no, you can't. Yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah, it is. It's wood paneled and you sort of walk in and um, I'm pretty sure that Doug like rearranges the books or something like the, to, yeah. to change things around. But yeah, there's very little that you can change. It's we've modernized it a bit, but um, it does give you a sense of awe actually walk, walking in there and thinking about um, – yeah, that was a desk at which somebody like literally it is the ultimate entrepreneurial story. Right? Yeah. And of course, if uh, if you do read the biography, 
um, I would argue his his actual office is probably that truck. Yeah. Um, because per your sort of uh, chief customer officer <laughs> comment, uh, he spent an awful lot of time in the field visiting stores mm-hmm. and talking to customers. And I, I think in the early days it was driving to them in the truck. And then in the later days it was in the airplane. <laughs> yeah. I mean there are um, – uh, there are so many people uh, still around, uh, colleagues of mine who have you know, the, so many Mr. Sam stories. But um, you are absolutely right. I mean, so <clears throat> he literally would fly over geographies uh, and from the air in his like little you know prop plane would figure out for that you know for that town where was the corner of Maine and Central. Right. And and then, you know, and figure that out and then figure out that that's where you needed to geographically put your store. If that's not micro targeting, right, circa, you know, uh, circa those days, then I don't know what is. Cool. Uh, I wanted to start off the questions by kind of starting at the, the super high level. So you guys see so many customers and get so much data. How do you use all those insights that are gathered to deliver better experiences for shoppers? Uh, it's a great question. Um, uh, so yeah, you know, 160, 160 million people shop in Walmart every day. Um, so, uh, we are trying to slice and dice and make sure that we, um, the, the information is usable to do the sorts of things, um, that we want to take from an experiential perspective. So if you think about Walmart's data, um, it's primarily skew driven, right? So it's, it's really interesting for me because it's I would sort of it's skewed level. So I would say it's kind of at the base level. Um, what we're trying to do is is figure out how you aggregate that skew level data. You attribute it to the right kind of customer, right? Whether they're across across payment tenders, etc. Think about it; it's the diametric opposite of American Express, where I knew everything about the customer and I couldn't get down to skew. Right? We couldn't ever get down to what are they actually buying. Here, I know how many bottles of ketchup we, we've sold. The question is, how many did Janie buy? And when did she use cash? And when did she use a credit card? And when did she buy them online? And when did she go to the store? So we are laddering it up, um, just in terms of what people actually do. Um, the other piece that we are double, triple, you know, quadruple clicking on is. Uh, how are people actually behaving in the stores? You know, what what are what are they seeing? How are they shopping differently? And how do we use that to make sure that we are augmenting that experience? And or as we seek to rationalize things in the stores for operational efficiency, we're doing it in a way that that makes sense um, for customers. And so that's a whole uh, a whole other realm where we have some of the data, but we haven't spent a lot of time, you know, in. Uh, some of the behavioral science components and ethnography and actually, you know, uh, space uh, space evaluation as, as we think about bringing all of that together. So if you compound all of that data, what does it allow us to do? It allows us to really think about who our design target are, what they really want with some degree of precision because by its very nature, you know, we serve all of America. You can't design for everybody because by its very right, – we're obviously designing for nobody at that point. So how do we design those right experiences? How do we prioritize where we go to design those great experiences? And I think probably most importantly, the way I like to say it is, if you think about going back to Mr. Sam, what made those first stores so great was he figured out where to put them. He had the right uh, the right product in there that was relevant at the right price point. And he had really great people in the store who knew who you were and were able to welcome you in. And, you know, it was a, you know, in, a, in modern terms, a you know, fast, frictionless, fun, personal experience. I'm now trying to recreate that experience at scale with digital tools. And so it's really how much can we uh, understand about our customer based on what we know and where do we need to augment that, right? So we don't have all the data. Um, so how do we augment that? such that we can really create the sorts of experiences that that multitude of customers want across channels. And so, you know, I hate the word omni, um, uh, but, you know, but still, how do you let people flow in and out of, of, of online, uh, online, offline, uh, various stores without making the experience really hard and, re- and really clunky? Uh, and I'm really on a mission to try and make it fun. Fun to shop at Walmart physically, fun to shop at Walmart digitally. So I'd like to bring some of that in um, too. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the, you know, uh, we'll talk about Amazon, but, you know, 
no one ever said, wow, that Amazon experience was fun. It was just kind of very transactional. Um, the, uh, I'm a, I'm a four-time entrepreneur and I've done three B2B companies and my latest company is consumer. And, uh, I found when I was B2B, it was always easy to say, put the customer first, but in the consumer world, it's actually been surprisingly hard because I found it's constantly at odds with what the rest of the business wants. So, so I've been dying to get someone of your tenure on a, on a podcast like this and ask you that question of how do you navigate that? And because there's times when it's not right to do what the customer want, you know, it's perennial returners, or you could always price things that the company doesn't make money and survive and the customer's still happy. Um, how, how do you think about that? And then how do you articulate it into the organization? So, you know, all the way down to that store associate, they kind of understand that, that calculus. Um, that's like the key to the code, right? Um, yeah, I figured, I figured um, you've, you've figured it out. So I've so found I wish, the one person I wish I, that's yeah, I, I wish I could say, to, I, I wish I could say, you know, the key to the code is 62. Um, uh, so I think, uh, your, your question is a good, and I'll give you, I'll give you a Walmart example. Um, you know, this predates me, but, um, you know, I'll hear stories of, well, we got a whole bunch of customer research, um, and what we what we heard was that um, what we should do is put um, uh, what we should do is move the pharmacy closer to where you know closer to grocery because that's a mission, right? So we understand that uh, grocery and pharmacy tend to be a mission. So let's move it away from where it is at the front and let's let's move it towards the food because uh, customers love it. Um, turns out when you do that, that that's great. But here's what happened: they go in and out, right? They do the pharmacy in the grocery, and they don't go anywhere else in the store. Right, it's it's hard for us to be able to maintain uh, the prices uh, that we have, you know, those 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 everyday low prices on the food and uh, the food and grocery side. If we're not, you know, if they're not buying other things, so what happens in in the long run up on the back of that decision is eventually prices go up, right? So if you said to customers, "Hey, would you like to have your pharmacy and grocery close together?" But if you like it, but in the long run, that's going to mean that you pay more for those. The answer would be no. I'm quite happy to, right? I'd rather take that extra couple of seconds. And so applying that business logic um, is really important. The way that we are working it through is that, as I said, you know, I said it's my job to understand objectively who the customer is and what we're hearing from them. And I've worked really hard to build and preserve a voice of the customer team that has no skin in the game in the answer, right? And that is really important to me. So they can be entirely objective. Uh, They're not, you know, uh, solving for anything. They bring that forward. We use that um, to then prioritize what we think based on, you know, a a whole series of metrics, which you can, which you can, you know, uh, probably figure out in terms of, you know, frequency and and size and, um, and then attempt to design the experiences or the solutions against it. What I then need to do is, um, as we go through that process, is that we're bringing the insights and we've prioritized them, I then need to turn to my uh, colleagues who are the merchants or my co- my colleagues in operations or uh, you know central operations or uh, running the stores and say, okay, so here's what I think we need to do. How would we operationalize that? And then what tends to happen um, there is we'll say, well, I know that you want to, you know, I know that you want to design an experience this way. Uh, here's the reality, right? That's going to increase cost four times. But if you did it, like, could, if you span it this way, and so we take those ideas typically and we pressure test them and say, well, okay, well, how would we deploy that? How, you know, what do we think of the intended and unintended consequences? And then we go back to that idea and it tends to, you know, and, and we modify it, but then, and then we go sort of back to make sure we haven't stripped out so much that it becomes, you know, uh, unattractive to the customer, so it, it tends to be a super purist start. Then we, you know, then we apply some brain power and you know prioritization, and then typically as it goes into like how would we operationalize that, you come you you come back to actually maybe we're solving, you know, we're we're, we're creating too many problems on the back end, or sometimes you realize actually we can solve several of these problems at one time if we just if we just move some move some things around, and so. Um, it's always a give and take, though, between, you know, obviously, I would like to roll out red carpets, welcome people in, high five them when they came in, right? Um, uh, be able to recognize who they were and have everything ready packed for them. Um, economically, that's not going to work, right? What is super important to our customers is the consistency uh, with which we're able to deliver um, 
great items at, at everyday low prices. So, you know, that, our number one delivery point is that all the time. And then it comes and then comes behind that. OK, um, what's the right experience that we can build to, to support that? Yeah, uh, it's funny. As a, a very young man, I was pitching a. Uh, some new new customer experience to a merchant at Walmart, and I'm I'm not going to date myself by saying how long ago this was. Um, and at the, uh, and and the merchant was you know talking about the operational challenges, and I'm like, yeah, but uh, like you acknowledge this is a much better customer experience. And the you know this this wise Walmart merchant looks at me and goes, Jason, white carpets would be a better customer <laughs> experience too. You're probably not going to see those in a Walmart store. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, and so to me, like I, I feel like the insight you have there is is like preserving the voice of the customer and respecting the voice of the customer, but putting it in the context of this this larger ecosystem of experience. Like often you see people make the mistake of just like asking a, you know, a customer a, a, a question or getting a customer preference in a vacuum. And per your point, like this is a very complex ecosystem with a lot of inputs and outputs. Um, I, I want to continue the trend of asking you hard questions that we don't know the answer to. <laughs> um, so I, I have to be honest, like, to me, thinking about your role, one of the things that makes it daunting is typically in marketing, um, you know, we we try to target a particular customer, right? And we think about segmentations and everyone creates these personas. And, I, you know, I know Walmart, of course, has, has the persona, the famous busy mom persona. Um, but the challenge is at your scale, you guys are so huge that 160 million shoppers a week, um, the like – Almost any persona you you create is then too small to be economically relevant to Walmart. So so how do you do marketing and personalization and targeting in a world in which like literally everyone is your customer? Um, so the way you're absolutely right. It's funny. Uh, my first kind of couple of weeks, you know, you go on your listening tour. So I went around on my listening tour and I'd say to everybody, OK, so who's the customer? And everybody would say, well, everybody. I said, well, what do you mean everybody? They're like, well, everybody. And I'd say, no, 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 but who is the target customer? Well, everybody. I'm like, no, I understand that you serve everybody. Um, that does not mean that's your target customer. And so I keep saying, so just as, you know, you see, you know, McDonald's is a great example to me, right? Um, you know, just I, the people that you see, the way I've been explaining to people at Walmart, the people that you see in the McDonald's advert probably aren't a real direct reflection of the people that are shopping in, in, in McDonald's every day, but it's a reflection of where they want to go and, and what their target is. And so there's a difference between serving everybody and designing for a very specific target. And so we have done a lot of work on this this idea of the design target, um, you know, not new to, to anybody listening to this, um, you know, and we talk about this busy family Um uh, as being our design target. Um, and then we sort of think about this continuum, these busy families on this continuum um, with, and, and really the continuum is um, what is the ultimate driver at any point in time? And they do, they do flex between money and time, right? And everybody, you know, everybody, no matter where you are uh, in what is, is at some point balancing off money and time. Uh, and so you think, you know, we're thinking about that design target. How do we, how do we think about where we're, where, where we're playing? You know, the, this sort of financially um, sensitive, busy family is probably what you would equate to the, you know, to the, to the Walmart shopper. But you find interesting things in there, like, you know, they're still not going to go to 15 stores to try and find, you know, a, a packet of pasta at a, a lower price. They're looking for consistency uh, in the goods that they buy and access to the right, to the right sorts of brands. To your point about making it smaller, obviously, as soon as I start talking about busy families, people say, exactly, it's reductive, right? That's smaller than the entirety of who we serve. You're not wrong. Um, so then what we did was a, a whole bunch of statistical work to say, okay, well, if we think about the segments, and we've done a broad segmentation, we have six segments across that 160 million. If we think about that, how do we statistically correlate that the actions that we would take on behalf of uh, solving for the busy families correlate strongly enough to the other segments. And so, you know, I always have this chart that I sort of walk around that has this inner ring, which is these time-sensitive busy families. We must protect them. They are our core, right? We protect them with always delivering on everyday low price and, you know, and, and trying to create the best sort of experience. And if we do that, um, you know, those are core to also helping us solve for that more 
um, time-sensitive busy family who still needs everyday low-cost and, and frictionless experiences, but wants more, you know, wants uh, more, more digital aspects to that. Right? Really wants this sort of buy online, shop, shop in store components. Um, and then you start to, and as you pull out of that circle, we've then correlated those actions that you would take against the other, other of the six segments so that we understand where we want to, how deep we want to grow, and then and how broad we want to go. And so, we've been working through this. A uh, better part of a year now, and I think that lens. I'm just starting to see most conversations now start with, you know, here's a broad picture of where we want to go. As we lens for that, uh, you know, that time sensitive, busy family. Here's how we might start to think about making slightly different decisions. Don't get me wrong. This is not about, you know, moving away from opening price point or moving away from branded goods or, or any of the above. But it allows us to start to think about. How would we, back to those journeys, how would we prioritize where we would do things like you know, cake ordering or the work that we're doing on store maps or you know, the work that we've been doing? You've seen us talk a lot recently about online grocery pickup and now about delivery. Those are the sorts of things that you start to look at when you say, okay, well, if, if time becomes even more of a factor than we thought it was before, how would you solve for these things differently, right? A lot of work now on the product side now around things like um, ready meals. So uh, the lot of, like healthy ready meals that busy, you know, busy families can run in and pick up that are a great, a great alternative to picking up fast food on the way home, right? Market side soups or uh, our natural selection, right? How, how do we do that? So it's starting to lens the way that we create experiences and we and we assort and you know, we assort the stores. Very cool. I'm the uh, I'm the e-commerce side of this podcast partnership and uh, uh, I'm a uh, love marketplaces. I, I started Channel Advisor, which is a partner of Walmart's, um, and so I, I couldn't go on without asking a, a marketplace question. So so on Walmart.com, you guys uh, you know it kind of took a while, but you guys really have your sea legs on the marketplace. How do you see that? Um, kind of tying into the customer experience. Obviously it's caused an explosion of selection, but but where are you guys and you're thinking around the the dot com marketplace? Super important to us. So uh, if you think about um our top priorities, you hear Mark talk, you know, we'll we'll talk a lot about marketplace or putting time, effort, brain power, thought in into that. Um why do I you know and making sure that our marketplace experience is good enough, right? Um uh and that, you know, we recognize that um even though you might be buying, you know, from Janie's toys, the reality is you have come onto Walmart.com to buy that. And we need to make sure that we stand behind that experience um, and we have the right tools and, and, and capabilities to do that and that you are not in any way disadvantaged by buying a marketplace item, right? So I'll give you a good example. Why? Um, uh, it was really important for us to make sure that if you bought a marketplace item, you could return it in the store as well as online, right? And, and somebody didn't say, oh, well, I see that you bought this from Janie's Toys. We're not going to take it back. Um, sounds sounds easy, but does really okay. hard, right? So building a marketplace where you've got third-party sellers when you've got such a, you know, such a big physical asset is, ha- is hard. Um, but it's really, I think it's really, it's really important because, um, you know, as you said, it's important that we have a large selection of items because the reality is, I don't really want a customer to go anywhere else, right? I want a customer to be with us super frequently for groceries and, and, and frozen and consumables. And we feel really good with our, you know, forward deployed inventory and, you know, within 10 minutes of 95% of America to get that frequency. But when you're shopping with us for groceries, I want to be able to fill everything else, right? And so, you know, and, and, and frankly, our... You know, our thinking is you should be able to, you know, we should be able to be able to pull people through, which is you come to us day in and day out because you you know that we're going to get you those great groceries. But we have a great selection of 1P items, right, that you can add into your basket. And by the way, if you wanted that sort of super random thing uh, that we are are not economically going to be able to carry, you can get it. You can get it now at the same time, you know, same package, same bundle, you know, what one click away. So I think it's really important as customers start to uh, curate, whether they do it a notion, you know, they do it deliberately or not, I think people are starting to curate how many places they actually spend time. Um, you know, in the past, you think about you probably shopped on like thirty or forty different sites. Uh, the one thing Amazon has got people to do right is to just go to one place. I sort of talk about it as the library effect, right? Uh, my kids 
use Am- literally lose Amazon as a library, right? They've totally disintermediated Google. Uh, they just go straight into Amazon and, and, and that becomes it. Um, it's really important for us that we have the capacity to be able to dislodge that um, with our, you know, with, with our differentiation at the, at the forefront, which is obviously the, the grocery component of that. Yeah. Uh, like it is interesting. A, a lot of these like new digital behaviors are creating new opportunities but also new challenges. So like one, you mentioned all the progress you guys have made with online grocery pickup. Uh, I'm a huge fan and advocate. It just seems like every time you talk to a customer, that's a life-changing experience. Um, and it's easy to see why busy families are quickly adopting this new behavior. And it seems like you guys are killing it on fulfilling that behavior. Uh, the dilemma in my mind is you have these beautiful stores that are designed to surprise and delight people by discovering other products they want to buy when they come for their essentials. And you've got this, you know, uh, super valuable center of the store where we can discover an Instapot while we're we're uh, shopping for our groceries or pharmacy or all these other things. And for sure, there's a bunch of purchases that in my mind, a lot of consumers have never put on a shopping list. Like I, I never put the Oreos or the gum on the shopping list. I secretly sneak them into the cart like at the last minute. So in a world where uh, you're helping everyone sort of transition to shopping off of a, a list and doing online grocery pickup, is there a risk of uh, – Sort of losing that that impulse purchase and that that you know how how do you uh, help customers discover new things in a world in which you're sort of forming a list habit, if you will. Uh, so is there a risk? Yeah, uh, and we're working really hard yeah. <laughs> to actually turn that risk into an opportunity, right? Um, so yes, and I think it's twofold, right? One is even though you might be doing pickup. Um, we still need to create really great stores that exactly do that, right? Suppliers and delight, and and, and every so often you're going to want to come in, right? Um, and so how we do that um, uh, and think about balancing uh, when we pull people into the stores versus when they're doing pickup, really, really important. So we're thinking about the physical dimension of this. And then on the, the digital space, you're absolutely right. Like how do you – how do you uh, – create that impulse purchase behavior and where do you, you know, where do you do it in the funnel? And so we're testing, a, you know, can imagine a myriad of ways of where in the purchase, in the in the purchase funnel do you do it? How, you know, do you want, uh, is it during like sort of the discovery phase, right? Is it is it through the checking out phase? Is it through, you know, do you want to present product up front? Well, I see that you're buying bananas. Um, you know, you should look at doing these other things. And where do we want to use different sorts of tools you know, what digital allows you to do really interestingly, if you get it right, and particularly going back to your very first question about data, is um, we can actually start to you know do things. So we've you know, we've done some work with BuzzFeed on shoppable, uh, <clears throat> like shoppable recipes. If you think about the, the nth generation of that, there's a world in which you could say, "I'm feeding a family of four. You know, one's got celiac disease. Uh, you know, one is you know, uh, you know, one has a, a a nut allergy. I need six meals." Right, present or right, present or present what I should I should be able to to buy. Oh, and by the way, based on this data, here are a few things that you might want to think about. And we've intuited, or we know who else is in your household. So let me show you those things. As we think about services like in home, what's super exciting to me about that is if you've got somebody going into the home, how about we start to think about physical trialing of products, right? So we know that you've got two boys at home, we're in doing groceries. How about we drop off these four or five things? Um, if you like them, keep them. If you don't, we'll pick them up right when we when we come back. Um, so how do you how do you start to think about? The, the 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 services that we have and the predict you know the predictive nature of what we can do to really sort of hyper personalize and, and just I think it's just the surprise and delight or the the impulse in a different kind of way right yeah that's a it's neat kind of like predictive or or try before you buy um, kind of you know thinking around the customer yeah um, one thing that's kind of uh, rocked the e-commerce world, it's kind of funny if, if you think about it, is Amazon's come out with a bunch of private labels and everyone's all up in arms. And you know, uh, and then you read that that Sam book and he talks about the old Roy dog food or as an old, uh, what's the dog's name? Yeah, old Roy. Old Roy. Yeah, yeah. And uh, sometimes I want to say old yeller. I guess. <laughs> um, how about, uh, you know, uh, I think one of the things Amazon's done though is they've kind of taken it from, you know, this is kind of like the product you, you bought to what 
what a lot of people call owned products. So like the Echo, where they've kind of found this customer segment that that wasn't there before, and they've created a whole new thing. And Target's gotten really good at this as well. Um, where where are you guys and you're thinking about that at Walmart of of private label and and how that fits in? Um, so we have a big and very fast growing really exciting private label business across Walmart, right? And the stores had that long before the e-commerce world, right? And you think about some of the brands that sit within that on the Walmart side and on the Sam side. Uh, Sam's have some amazing private label products too. Um, So, you know, that continues to get a lot of time, a lot of attention, a lot of focus, and and is really, like, you know, really growing, and we are super excited about growth, and we will continue to do that um, and offer that both online and offline. Um, obviously, we have acquired some direct-to-consumer brands. We have uh, created some direct-to-consumer brands, everything from sort of Bonobos to, to All's Well, um, and that remains an important part of our, of our, of our strategy. Um, and, you know, we're thinking through which brands are going to be online, exclu- you know, online only and, and when and where should things be sold in the store. So we'll continue to do that as we round out that broader assortment. And then I think there's an interesting piece you know, for me in the middle, which is um, how do we think about uh, sort of that next gen, which is not, you know, uh, um, uh, makers, you know, like a, you know, a maker's mark product, uh, private label product, or, um, you know, a great value toilet paper. Um, But you think about the work that we've been doing to incubate product, either ourselves or with suppliers. So I think about uh, uh, Kristen and Dax and Hello Bello, or I think about some of the work that we've been doing, um, uh, in the you know in the ladies uh, ladies shaving space, so you know we've worked with uh, you know the, the the big brands to to develop custom product uh, that that sits in our sits in our stores. You think about the apparel space, uh, whether it's the work that we've done with people like Ellen and Sophia in their collections, Scoop. Uh, you know, a, a classic New York fashion brand that we bought and now, and now we have that collection. So we're working through the many various ways that we can think about using different brands within the family and, and how do we deploy them. I think what makes us very different, though, is it is not our intention to uh, ever bring people into the Walmart family, uh, sell their product online, and then use that to, you know, to 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 use that data to then determine where we want to, you know, where we want to uh, put private label product. It, it's a different approach as we're incubating because our data shows us that there are price, there's either a gap in the market or there's a gap at a particular price point in the market, most pertinently opening price point for us in, in, in many cases. And we think we can create product the right way at that, at that price point. And that's really, really uh, where we're going. Sorry, there's a slight pause here that I'll fix. Mm. We were just uh, sorting questions for time. <laughs> you do eight, Jason. Okay. Uh, let me just put a note in here on the time so I don't mess up. One minute. Fix kit. Uh, that, that makes total sense. Uh, I wanted to go back. You, you uh, Early on when you were talking about your scope, uh, you mentioned a bunch of the things. And one of the things you mentioned that we actually don't hear all that much about is Walmart pay. Um, and we, we have a... Uh, we spend a lot of time talking about digital wallets on the on the show, and sort of a constant, a consistent theme is there are all these amazing customer experiences that happen in places like Asia um, that haven't been as successful here. And my premise is part of the reason they haven't been as successful here is there's not super convenient, seamless digital wallets like there 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 is yeah. in Asia. Um, I have a premise that Walmart Pay is secretly more successful and meaningful than. Uh, a lot of people uh, give it credit for, and you guys just don't talk about it that much. So, am I am I wrong? Is it an important uh, amenity at Walmart, or are Walmart shoppers using it? And how how do you think about it? Um, yeah. So, just to the first part of that question, um, as we think about, you know, as you do it, like studying you know, super apps, uh, which obviously are particularly prevalent in in Asia now. It's interesting when you take a look at most super apps. I mean, most of them developed out of one app, right, and then and then grew. Payments is a cons- you're right is is the usually the consistent glue across all the super apps, right? Um, so as we think about um, where we go with uh, with our app strategy and super apps, you're right. Walmart Pay becomes an interesting component of that. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, Walmart Pay is 
is successful. Customers use it. If you look at our latest, you know, the, the latest credit card that we just launched with Capital One, right? You enroll that in Walmart Pay, you get a significant advantage from doing that. Um, and it is our hope and our intention that we lean into that more in store and maybe even around the store, right? Around the store and in your in your community. So, uh, uh, creating opportunities to just make it much more more flawless. And if you're enrolled in Walmart Pay, we know more about you. And therefore, we potentially can offer you a series of experiences that we couldn't if we didn't know as much about you, right? And so for me, uh, making sure that there is enough value uh, and functionality in Walmart Pay that people choose to enroll and engage in it, not just download it, but engage in it, um, is super important because then that means I can get more right, I, right. I can get more information about you, which goes back to we said that I can create much better experiences for you, right? I can you can get scan and go, or you know, and we will will know more about your behavior, which might may might allow us to do different sorts of things on, on the back end in terms of um, returning products or un, you know unlocking other sorts of things, and so it becomes it does become for us that glue that allows us to then start to think about okay, well, how do we create other sorts of, you know, ongoing experiences. There's work to do, right? It's not where it needs to be. Um, uh, and we need to create more of an instinctive reason for being and, and, and benefit. Um, but it is an important part of, of how we anchor and, and where we go ongoing. Very cool. Uh, it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show if we didn't talk a little bit more about Amazon. We also talk a lot about Walmart. Um, <laughs> but uh, you, you mentioned, I, I think you said one of your kids kind of got trapped in the the prime, you know, the prime trap and it's hard to get them out of there. Um, and what we've seen a lot recently is Amazon u- is using that uh, and, you know, people are starting there and now they're pulling ad dollars away from even companies like Google with their ad platform. Notice Walmart's made some moves in the ad network uh, space as well. Um, so loved your thoughts on how do you view advertising and, and, you know, maybe even a broader question of how do you, how do you either stop people or get them out of that, that, prime trap that they get stuck in? Uh, so start with the prime trap. Um, I think, uh, you know, uh, I firmly believe that there is a tipping point one way or the other way, right? Um, and uh, there's a tipping point that got people into prime. Uh, there's a tipping people that get people out of prime. I think as the price of prime goes up, right, people become more reflect- reflective on what am I really getting and, and what do I need? So the number of times that I people, hear people say, well, I get free shipping with Prime. I'm like, no, you just paid for it at the beginning of the year. It's not free. Um, you know, you've just paid for it differently um, is is really intriguing. And so as you think about the tipping point, at, you know, and you think about the services within there, how do we nudge customers to really start to take a look at, is it really worth it, right? If I can get the same goods, uh, or more goods at the same or better price consistently at the same delivery, do I really want to be paying $129 a year for, you know, whatever it is, the Marvis, Mrs. Mizell and, 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 you know, and, and the content that, that we've got. So it's how do you nudge people, how do we start to uh, show people that there are better options uh, out there for pieces of this, and then and then it, yeah, and then the tipping point starts to become well. Then now I need to evaluate what else is in there, and and, and what do I get uh, on the ad business? Yeah, I mentioned I um, lead the Walmart Media Group. Um, you know, it's a new business for us, um, and so we are committed to building a world class a world class what I call a world class advertising business that people would be proud and would choose to advertise on, whether it said Walmart or not. Right. There's a difference between leaning on the suppliers to do it versus this is this is a platform that people want access to. And obviously, back just back to that early point, the more that we can slice and dice and 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 have better data, the more attractive it becomes. What I think is different about what we are going to do and our philosophy is we believe in creating really great customer experiences and creating an environment in which um you can continue to trust Walmart to do the right thing by you as a customer and by your data. And so we famously commit to everyday low price, right? We famously have shunned, uh, you know, uh, some of the, you know, the shopper marketing dollars. We haven't taken money to be able to, you know, to place products in stores. We are not going to break that philosophy and that ethos online. We will only, you know, any experiences that we uh, uh, sell against 
will be, in our opinion, accretive to the customer. Um, and so uh, we spend a lot of time, actually, we, we spend a lot of time even going through the plans, looking at do we believe this is good for the customer? Is it confusing? Uh, are they like, uh, do they actually understand what's going on here? You know, uh, would we be willing to corrupt the search algorithm? No, right? Those are the sorts of, and there are some decisions that we've made very recently about things that we will not sell because I don't think it's in the, in, in the best interest of the, of the customer. So it's a different ethos that we have around what and what and where we can do. And then one that is absolutely predicated on the trust and privacy and security of your data um, that I think is, is, you know, potentially lacking with some of the other models out there today. Yeah, I, I do think that's one of the fundamental challenges, like as sort of digital advertising for retailers is a, a relatively newer phenomenon and everyone's struggling with the you know, how do you maximize your business opportunity there while still saying customer centric? And, and you know, there certainly uh, are a lot of people that feel that, like, in the case of Amazon, particularly, they've pivoted wildly <laughs> to taking money and in some cases, like, aren't giving customers the best search results as a result. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's interesting to see how everyone uh, sort of makes those decisions for their own business. Um, I, I'm super happy. We've been spending the most uh, of the time in, uh, in this conversation talking about things that I view as sort of core to the customer and, and super relevant and immediate for today uh, and not a lot of shiny baubles. Um, but I got to be honest, our listeners do kind of like the shiny baubles. <laughs> um, so I wanted to uh, pivot for just a minute to sort of innovation. And, um, you know, if you follow the Walmart press, there, there are a bunch of sort of cool innovations. You've got Alphabots, you've got, you know, the in real life store um, that's not far from here, Sam's Club Now, uh, Jet Black, uh, all, all these sorts of things. Uh, are any of those projects that y- you think are like you're particularly excited about or uh, that you think are likely to turn into a, a super relevant customer experience? Like I, I would assume a bunch of those projects you'll learn things from and then, you know, maybe it'll be a di- different iteration of that that ultimately delivers on the customer promise. Like what what should uh, listeners look for to to really double down on at Walmart? Um, so, look, I gave, the, I gave the secret of one away, which is one that was – so you've heard us talk about Store 8, this sort of like future. So <clears throat> the intention there is you incubate ideas and they spin out, they spin in. The first one that is spun in – uh, is is what I talked about within home, right? Yeah. And so super excited about the capability and the service that we can build there, and what that actually what that actually means um, in terms of you know I love the idea of somebody coming in and putting groceries in my fridge and me never having to worry about them. Um, and then where do you take that in terms of well maybe if it's not just groceries, could it be you know could it be prescriptions? Could it be something else? And by the way, when, when if they're coming in once a week, can they pick up my dry cleaning and drop it off, right? Where else can you go in the service? Where else could we go with hardware, right? So can you move to full auto replenishment, right? Uh, can you start to think about, I mean, uh, there's all sorts of super interesting ideas we've, we've got in there um, that could be controlled through. The, what if you had like, you know, ovens, that you could pop a you know a, a really great ready made meal in before you left, and you could you could set it you know to to cook before, like from your phone when you're on the way home from work, etc. So really excited about that. Jet Black, I think, uh, and the conversational commerce arm underneath that is really interesting to me, as is voice, um, and you know the capacity to be able to walk around. Um, like I create lists when I shop. I always forget something. Then I, you know, I click checkout and I'm like, oh, shoot, I should have put apples in. I should have put something else in. Um, uh, I love the idea of being able to sort of walk around during, you know, at, at, at any point and text or, 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 or talk. But when I say apples, it knows that, you know, we're, we know that I buy, you know, a four pack of organic honey, honey crisp apples. It's not, it's not um, coming up with anything else. It becomes super personalized to you and, and you, I'm really excited. So I'm really excited about the conversational commerce capability and where it allows us to power at scale. What Jenny's done with Jet Black, I think, is great. And I'm a Jet Black user. I use it all the time. I love to be able to just text, you know, kitchen paper. And and, I, and it's 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 here in the after it's here in the afternoon. There's an immediacy I like, but the scale of the conversational commerce platform um, uh, is something that I'm I'm really excited about. And obviously, at some point, we need to lean in at scale to you know, what you've seen about whether it's the IRL score or some of what Jamie's done with, with Sam's in terms of scan and go in and out, right? You don't have to you know, check out lines 
in the store is an issue for us. Right? It is an issue for us, uh, particularly at holiday time, because who wants to be standing waiting in line? How do we start to not make that have to be a reality for customers? Um, but do it in a way that is economically sure. viable on the back end. So there, and you know, and then look, I would be remiss if I didn't say there is so much innovation technology that has gone into you know things like our pickup towers, uh, which are facilitating online grocery, uh, and all the work that the central operations team are doing in and around the stores to make them, uh, you know, to, to make us be able to lean into these customer experiences and to. Uh, appropriately automate where needed other areas, which gives us the you know the fiscal capacity to be able to to do some of these other things on, on behalf of the customer or on behalf of the associate. And there is so much innovation, frankly, that's going into uh, you know the even things like the training academies uh, and some of the the virtual reality we're doing in there, uh, and some of the, the the other things you're going to see us coming out with this year. All of which so, sort of leads its way back to creating you know. More efficient, happier associates who create a really great customer experience, and and so they they all sort of flow into one for me. Nice. Uh, I have to admit, uh, during your answer, the one thing I did have some empathy for the poor jet black person uh, that gets your orders because that's got to be like high stress when the boss is like ordering <laughs> stuff and it's supposed to show up quickly at her home. Um, the it's funny when you guys first announced the in home, you know, uh, I got called uh, by a lot of media that want you know their quick soundbite, yeah. and the the typical narrative was, "Are consumers really going to trust a stranger to come into your home?" And and my typical answer was. Like, that's not comfortable behavior today. That's not what we're all used to. Um, but if uh, I had come to you five years ago and said, are you going to trust calling strangers on the Internet to come pick you up in their car, um, you would have had a similar reaction. And, you know, customer behavior has obviously shifted. It's it's easy to see that same shift happen um, with this in-home opportunity, like, you know, if the amenities are there. And uh, to me, the funniest thing was when you launched it um, – uh, one of the first in-home services uh, Mark Laurie did, and of course uh, you have them all wearing body cams as as sort of a security measure. And I'm chuckling because I'm like, if there's one person I'm not worried about stealing from me <laughs> when they come <laughs> into my home, it's it's uh, Mark who's made quite a lot of money on his last last two companies. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, um, you know what is interesting though uh, about what you say is you're absolutely right, right? I mean the. As you come up with an idea, wouldn't it be great to put groceries – if we could put groceries in people's fridges? And everybody's, yes, that's great. I don't know that I want a stranger in my home. What I really excited, Bart Stein, who leads the team, and he's got an amazing organization. What I'm most excited that they did was they said, okay, so what we're solving for is, yes, the you know the logistics behind being able to do this – but that's irrelevant if we don't solve the trust factor. Yep. Um, so what are we going to need to do to solve the trust factor? And that has gone, you know, that has done everything from uh, the locks that are put on and, and the security behind that, behind the, the body cams, um, behind the selection, the training uh, of the associates who do it. Um, and frankly, like, how do you protect the security of the associate too, right, in, yeah. in many cases? And so it's a really interesting case study of – Actually, solving for the intangible, which is the trust component, is much more important than solving the tangible, right? Um, and, you know, we're still – we're expanding our testing and, and we're still going through and how, how do you start to scale something like this? But um, it's – I mean, it, it does – um, it does require you to do things, some things differently. And in-home's never going to be for everybody, right? It's never going to be for everybody. It's not, you know, and it's always going to be higher touch. Um, interestingly, you know, economically, it has some some real positives for us, right, um, as well. But it's just, it's solving for that intangible. What are the things that you have to tick off to make somebody comfortable having access to uh, having access to your home? Uh, and those are the access pieces. And then, look, if somebody comes into your home and is putting groceries in your fridge, and they mess up the fridge, right? Or they they've squashed the things, or they put them in wrong. Are you going? I mean, it's it's all of those levels of how do you get somebody to relinquish control of that customer journey, but relinquish control enough that they're not worried about the security or the delivery component, right, the, the, the execution of that, because otherwise it's not taking that stress away from somebody, right? They're just sitting there watching 
watching to make sure it's happening. The ultimate goal here is you are so trust, you know, you're so trusting of the service that you forget that you have to do it. Yeah, just just like an Uber type experience where it's become so second nature now that you don't really. Right. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, you don't, except for, you know, and then when you get those spikes and something unfortunately terrible happens, you, you, that, it, that is now shocking, right? It's, it's become such the norm that when something terrible happens, it may, you know, you're like, wow, wow. Um, and you're right, like several years ago, right? I mean, I grew up in the UK and grew up in a world where, you know, in, in London, <clears throat> cabbies had to pass the knowledge and you knew, and they were all like bad and, and all <laughs> yeah. of that. The notion of somebody could, I could become an Uber driver tomorrow, right? And, and I mean, even even think about that. You're getting into a car with a stranger who probably doesn't know where they're going and is relying on ways, right, to, to even to even tell you where they're going. I mean, it's, there's and when you know I've gotten cars before when the ways has been down, and then and then you're you're oh in real goodness. trouble, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool. Uh, we really appreciate your time, and we're we're kind of getting up to time. One last question. If we were to hop in our uh, retail time machine, uh, trademark Jason and Scott, uh, and go to 2030, um, ex- explain to listeners kind of like what would you love for that Walmart shopping experience to be like kind of five to 10 years in the future? Um, uh, oh, that's a great question. Um, I'd love for, our, you know, I'd love for our stores to still be around, but to be really interesting, engaging places where people went to, um, enjoyed going, um, and went, you know, and went to have fun as opposed to, you know, sort of bracing yourself to go and do your, 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 your weekly shop. So how do we create all of that? But then how do you augment that, um, digitally beforehand so that, you know, when you're in there, you can actually focus on having the fun, um, uh, and you know, and and just create really great flawless experiences. So a world where actually you're walking in uh, and you've already pre-ordered your groceries and they're coming to you, but you know you're able to uh, dunk a basketball with LeBron in the sports department through virtual reality, right? Or uh, as you're getting close to the store, we're reminding you that it's your nephew's birthday next week. Whilst they're packing your groceries, why don't you go take a look at Lego? And you know, it's popular. You've got augmented reality popping out of your phone, right? Uh, and or um, you're able to do, you know, multiple other tasks whilst you're there, I think is probably um, where you go. But I do think it's getting that fun back. Like for us, you mentioned it earlier about nobody ever says that Amazon's fun, right? There's a functional nature um, to to retail, particularly in the retail space that we're in. Um, how do we how do we turn that that functional into into fun and when things are fun you start to engage with them more and so it becomes a real it becomes a want to do versus a a, a a must do right i'd love a world where people were really excited about doing their grocery shopping at walmart that, that i mean that would be great uh that is an awesome vision and that's going to be a perfect place to end it because it's no surprise even on our fourth anniversary show we've completely used up all of our listeners allotted <laughs> time uh janie uh, really appreciate you taking the time to come chat with us uh, and share some of the visions for where Walmart's going. As always, uh, if you enjoyed this show, uh, feel free to leave us a comment on Twitter or Facebook. And uh, for sure, if you haven't done it already, uh, we're four years in, for God's sake. It's time to get on <laughs> iTunes and finally give us that five-star review. Thanks, Janie. Really appreciate you taking time to be on the show and helping us celebrate uh, 200 episodes and four years of podcasting. You are very welcome. Honored to be here. Thank you. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.